evening or late afternoon. I will call the meeting of the Human Resources Committee to order and um, point out that, uh, well, if we could do the roll, then we'll. Trustee DeVries is absent. Trustee Hernandez. Here. Trustee Jensen. Here. Have a quorum. And Trustee DeVries told me earlier today that he would be running late, so we hope to see him in order. The first item, action item, is the approval of minutes. Oh, excuse me. Public, I do have public comment, actually. So, um, welcome Ann Shiloh from SEIU Local 21. Thank you. I wanted to give you a quick update on the RIF processes as we're experiencing them. Um, we today, uh, I think, completed our third or fourth meeting on the main layoff conversations, and those have gone well. We have managed uh, working with uh, Desiree Mosley and Lillian Campos to um, preserve employment for uh, the majority of those folks. And I think there has been nobody who has, um, at this point, we've signed agreements that uh, ensure that nobody is unwillingly let go. So. Um, that is proceeding apace, and it's uh, smooth. Uh, the Fairmont uh, situation is the diametric opposite. Um, we have filed no fewer than, I think, 11 grievances around this because of non-response. Those are moving to arbitration. We also are uh, prepared to uh, file unfair labor practices related to this. Uh, we did these. Hope on the horizon. We did meet um, uh, in a session with Desiree Mosley and Lillian Campos on Fairmont Sniff rebid issues. If that work today can be effectuated, uh, then all that may be resolved. But um, this, for employees at the Sniff, you must know, has been uh, devastating. Um, there is now uh, no clear staffing uh, result uh, because changes are still being made by the management there. Um, this is different from an agreement that we made late Friday to allow workers to swap shifts. This is a lot of detail, but uh, the bottom line is, is that the problems there are proceeding. And until there's uh, honest work with the union to sort this out and get it done quickly, uh, those, I'm certain, will continue. Um, the other thing is that there have been a number of grievances to which we have not had response, uh, forcing us to just escalate. And our process prior to about late June had been to work closely with line-level managers and labor relations to solve these things before they even hit <coughs> paper. Uh, something changed. Uh, and now we've got a number of them in the pipeline for arbitration, and that's not, that's, I don't think that's any of the party's interest. Um, so what we're hoping for is that this committee can take a close look at what has happened uh, and uh, we are available to, to move further to describe how this has gone. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. 
And now to the approval of the minutes of the July 11th meeting. And I will move approval. Second. All in favor? Aye. Aye. <laughs> the two of us. Thank Aye. you. And our um, information and discussion, um, again, we're discussing the Human Resources Dashboard to establish the top priorities for the committee to um, monitor and to to share in terms of how we're meeting our, the strategic planning for human resources. So um, with that, hello, Tony. Thank you, Trustee Jensen. And so I'll start at the beginning. Um, it, the pattern hasn't changed. <coughs> it's just that going. Okay, that's good. Um, so you see the first looks good. Time to fill has gone down in the last month, which is a positive move. Um, and time to start has gone down as well. And so in terms of that, we have stopped reporting that up to the, the full dashboard because we indicated we think we've got a good handle on this now. Recruitment is running well. It doesn't need as much attention uh, at this level or the full board or the full board level, but we'll keep reporting it. But it feels like it's going in the right direction. When we compare it to market, we're doing extremely well in the last month. Hopefully we can stay on track. We do expect fluctuations through the year, uh, but right now we're heading in the right direction. Uh, the next, um, as you know, is really an assessment. As we become uh, an anchor institution, one of the measurement is, is to assess who is hired from the community, who works in the organization. Uh, there's not a specific target for that, and as we work with anchor institutional organizations, they indicate there isn't necessarily something specific to work to. But you should be tracking this, and so we're going to keep reporting on this. For the sake of argument, yeah. would you like to set a target so that you could just measure your own self against some metric? The, well, it's, it's a really good question. Um, I think then you have to ask, what our intent becomes. And so are we are attempting to move people who are already employees but perhaps live in Contra Costa County and drive in who previously maybe lived in Oakland. Uh, are we trying to move those employees out and replace them with people closer to us? Yeah. What we know is the demographics are changing more locally because of the cost of living going up and that doesn't necessarily serve as well. Right. Um, so, I, so I think we've got to keep an eye on it. <laughs> Um, hot, hot mic. Uh, um, and so it's a good discussion, and I think something that I need to think about and reflect on. I'm not opposed to us having a target there, but I do think there is some potential unintended consequence of that action. Uh, and we do have a lot of employees who have had to move further and further away. Anecdotally, I think I shared, but I would like to share with Trustee Jensen. I mean, I'm going through leadership myself right now, and one of the people I'm sharing a table with is uh, an EVS supervisor who gets up at 3 o'clock in the morning to drive into work because he has to come from Martinez. Now, if I had to make a, do I want him to lose his role for someone who lives close? Absolutely not. And I know that's not what you're suggesting, but I think there are potential unintended consequences as we drive to hire more and more locally. Uh, I do think we, the outreach needs to be more locally. Uh, I think the work, and we're doing a significant amount with the EDD right now uh, about local hiring, and we're doing training with the EDD about interviewing mm -hmm. so that candidates come in. So we're trying to bring people in more locally where we can. 
but I think there are potential risks if we set a target to reduce the number of people that are further away, that live further away. But I want to think about it some more if I can and, and seek out more data and see if, if it makes sense for us to set some targets. Yeah, I think as long as it's not outrageously high, I, yeah. I just think it's helpful when you say we'd like to have, mm -hmm. you know, at least half of our employees or a third from the local community that yeah. it gives you a way to really look at this and say, yeah. hey, we're, we're doing what we said we set out to do. That's yeah. all. It's a fair point. I would say if you look at this from a trending standpoint, if you look at the applicant pool and the number of hires, it is below the number of existing employees that live within the yeah, county. So sure. if trends continue and the applicant pools are coming from further away, over time, it's people sure. are going to be traveling. It's going to shift. And, and as we were talking about before the meeting started, you know, people have trouble traveling in. Uh, and at some point, we may have to do something about that and, and find ways to help our employees while we're not Google or Yahoo. Uh, we do have people traveling a very long way to come and do work here, and maybe we can partner with other institutions, and that's something we'll probably investigate to see, could we partner with a Kaiser or with the county or someone else and set some sort of service up, because I think if we can help our employees so much the better, yeah. although it runs counterintuitive to, to people living locally. And it, it, I think this is an excellent point. I, it, it, the reason why it's so difficult to, to try to discern what, what is a reasonable target to set around these things, because at some point you run up against the challenges of the reality of the market, right? And affordable housing, housing in general, and affordable housing in Alameda County is, is something that we're all struggling with, and housing stock doesn't, doesn't drastically improve in any sort of bolus period of time, and so it's just a longitudinal thing. I think being transparent, aware of this from our own perspective, how much of it uh, we have and being transparent about what the trends are is a is a step in the right direction to, to underscore the importance of the, uh, of the uh, objective for our organization and then kind of factoring all those things in and uh, yeah. seeing what you can do. Last thing I'll say is we, earlier on, actually, in my arrival here, when we started to talk about anchor mission, uh, had a couple of conversations with, like, uh, uh, groups of employees and, um, even kind of a, a little bit more uh, 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 refined than this, we were talking about the, the, that tying into the population health goal of making sure that people who get their care here are viewed as, you know, uh, employment targets for the organization or, or op op opportunities for the organization. And uh, one of the comments that a, one of the staff members who was in one of these conversations said to me was, well, the challenge there is obviously a lot of times, and not always the case, but some many cases, a lot of uh, uh, patients who we serve live in uh, subsidized housing and other sorts of situations. And then when you look at that from a sort of a uh, uh, academic base and otherwise, and the fact that when people are able to economically uh, um, change their lot, then mm -hmm. they often move away from communities. And then so you have that dynamic of the pull tug, right? We say we want people in the community, we get them in the community, and then they uh, improve their lot and they move away. And you say, well, now you can't work with us anymore. You know, it's, it, it's skewing it in another direction. But I think pronouncing this and doing it, and mm -hmm. as Tony said, being targeted in our efforts to reach out to those communities are really important. Well, to, to your point, uh, um, and I don't know if, if it would certainly be something that would be a, a contract issue, but, uh, uh, and I, I don't know if it's even feasible, but some organizations probably, in my experience, have um, additional points for either uh, locality, either city or region or we do that on a contracting basis for you know big projects like a, the rehab location or something. But I mean, for a point like on an application or you, you potentially so we, 
so to that, that's really a civil service approach to recruiting that we don't apply. Um, the second part of that is you, you have some significant risk of disparate impact. Right. So as, this is a crude term, but as Oakland is paling, you know, there's mm -hmm. an um, inflow of Caucasian uh, in, into a community that was predominantly African-American and uh, Hispanic. Uh, and you give people points, you potentially have a disparate impact as that community changes. Well, I'm thinking more of Alameda County, but um, and, and along those lines, I just I'm just throwing that out there. I wouldn't. I, I, it's never seemed to me as a supervisor or as a person who reviews applications that that works very well because people who tend to apply are the people that are have the people who would make the list are the people that are going to have the skills and have the interest and and you know if they live on the other side of you know, that through the, the tunnel, then that may, may not disqualify them, hopefully. Right. Um, my other question is, um, oh, uh, to similar question, is there a point on the application where that's identified? I mean, or is it just well, that? we have to identify because we're capturing the demographics here. Yeah, we do not use it for any selection okay. purposes at all. Okay. And um, finally, is... And this wouldn't be something that we would use and I would include on the dashboard or I suggest that, but just for informational purposes, would it be valuable or what would you think, um, Maria, about stratifying this according to either job description and job description and or site? Because I, it seems to me that people who are working at the clinic in Newark probably are possibly more likely to be living in Alameda County, Lower Alameda County, or areas like that than perhaps people who are here in Oakland that could be living right in, in Contra Costa, West Contra Costa? I, I guess my question would be to what end? What, what, what would we do information, you know, rather, because I, and the reason that we're up is because I, I wonder if that would inform us a little bit more so we wouldn't be so, we have our largest site, right, is Eastmont and Highland and the, in Oakland. Uh, uh, the majority of our employees are in, in terms of where the concentration right. of employees right. are. Right, and they're more, um, the accessibility to, you know, other, West Contra Costa and Contra Costa um, is... Well, by the, by the side, but I don't know where they actually live. Yeah, I said, so, the employment base is a little bit different. And the other thing to consider is, is whether and to what extent we, we inadvertently hamper our ability to attract and retain talented well, I don't Yeah, I, I, I'm not suggesting it would just be for information. But um, finally, what about stratifying it by position? Like, to Tony's point about his leadership, you know, the people that you work with, that yeah. obviously the people who may not be in um, both ways, the higher and lower, and if you're, you know, very highly paid and you don't have to be at work till 9 or 9.30, you might tend to live in Alamo versus, or if you're, if you have, if you're less um, paid, lower paid, you might tend to live, regardless of what time, if you have to be here very early, you might tend to live in Martinez or Antioch or somewhere, so. Yeah, let me reflect on that a little bit and do the useful, okay. because if it's actionable, it's useful. And let me look at what we're actually capable of pulling out and we'll okay. go back to you on, on whether we can pull to that by the job code and by location. Sure, thanks. Um, the next one I, I don't want to skip over, but within 30 days I'll have a number. We're working with our broker. He's indicated he'll give us a number, a benchmark on the number of lost days 
and we've been working on this for a while. I think I've indicated we shifted vendor last year. They calculated it in a different manner, and we're now working on that. I'm guaranteed to have it within 30 days, so you'll have something at the next meeting. Uh, the next, in terms of uh, workplace injuries, uh, the target was uh, that we rolled up to the board dashboard was 25 per month, so that equates to obviously 75 uh, for this purpose, and we're at 65 right now. Uh, we've done a lot of work in our lift program, so reduce injuries in that area, um, and we have a comprehensive plan where our uh, workers comp and uh, return to work uh, leader, Greg Stevens, is going out physically in a much more frequent basis. He's being pushed out. It's one of his goals to get out on the, uh, to the front line, interacting with staff to fully understand why we get repeat injuries. And at times it seems obvious if you get a, I don't know, a, a lifting injury in EVS and that keeps repeating. But the work is physical work and I want to make sure that he fully understands what, if anything, we can do to reduce those stresses. Most of the injuries um, are lift and strain injuries. In nursing, it's a very physical job, unfortunately. Now we have lifts um, at multiple, if not all, locations. We have a training program that was rolled out over several, so 20, about 24 months. We did every location in the organization. We need to stay on top of that. I don't think we can let it go at this point. But we hopefully we'll see this trend continue where we're below target, and ideally we'll keep working in that direction to ensure there's a reduction in workplace injuries. Um, turnover uh, spiked up, uh, as you'll see um, in the in the quarter. Some of that is the reduction in force. All all uh, all turnovers captured. So voluntary, involuntary, and so uh, unfortunately we expected it to go up in in the in the quarter we we're reporting, simply because there are more people leaving. Uh, I think what you'll also see is actually a fluctuation up in time to fill in the next quarter because there are a number of positions on hold. Uh, and mentioned earlier the, the the ability to place people in existing roles. All of those roles were frozen, and so as we move people into them then they're going to be filled, but they were open for a longer period than they might otherwise have been, and so we'd expect time to fill to go up in the next quarter when we report out on that. Uh, and as you see, nursing turnover uh, went up. It dipped in the previous quarter down to 10%, and it's back up to about 12.18, which is closer to where it's been historically for us. Um, first year turnover, let me go back, um, actually in healthcare, we've been looking at the data, uh, runs roughly about 30%. Uh, and so it is astronomically high. We're doing better than that, but we're not where we want to be. Um, we are or will be rolling out uh, behavioral interview training uh, for managers. Uh, the classes have been developed. They're ready to go. We just, and we have tools that we've evolved for them. I think most of the change is here in terms of who we hire, and that'll sort of feed into the next discussion about probation and releases. Because I think if we can invest more on the front end and making someone's a fit um, for the organization with mission, vision, values, then we have a better chance of ensuring that we equip them then with the skills. Many of the roles, we don't hire people who we don't think are qualified for the work. So we think they've potentially got the skills. The question is, are they aligned? Do they fully understand what the job is? Do they understand this environment? Coming out of perhaps hotel space, if you're moving into an EVS or food and nutrition services, it is not the same in healthcare as it is somewhere else. Um, and likewise, in other roles, when they come into a safety net organization, the potential is they feel it's different than, than where they worked before. 
and we have to make sure that people understand that before they get here. The goal is not to scare them about what they face, but it is, it is to be honest. And I think we have some work to do on that front end piece to ensure that when we hire people, we're very clear about our expectations, and they're very clear and understand the institution and what we stand for. Uh, and I, I'm not convinced right now that we're doing a great job of that. And so we're looking at a couple of different models. Delvecchio has suggested some things as well from uh, talking um, with Epic. Uh, and I've experienced other models in other countries that are very different than the way recruitment's done here. In the UK, for example, in, in banking, hiring managers don't hire anyone. They're not allowed to. HR makes a decision based on a, a battery of tests and assessments, usually assessment days. And you then group them together, and they go forward to the managers. That is not. So this is an it's still an immigrant. That's not the American way. People think they, they're in charge and they should have a choice about exactly who works for them. And you can make some changes to that, um, but, but there are, you know, it, it is difficult because that's the way everyone else hires. I'm the hiring manager. I do the interview and I do the selection. Uh, when you look at the data nationally, two years later, would you hire the person again? It's about 30%. So 33, about a third would hire them again two years later. So there's no panel interview, no staging um, of interviews? It varies. Oh. It varies by the level of position, by the volume. Because even in, I mean, in the tech sector, sometimes they're hiring yeah. um, a person who meets expectations around certain credentials or, or um, degree. But they're actually not aware of what the job will be. They end up getting assigned to that after they go yeah. through that first cut. Yeah. So, oh, sure. Sorry. So, does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Um, how it works here and in most healthcare is people apply for a specific yeah, job. A specific job. Uh, and then you're really looking, most health, not most, many healthcare providers are, are federal contractors, and so under CCP, you apply for a specific job for tracking purposes, so you can track back, see who applied, and then look at the demographics for any discrimination purposes. But you're telling us that HR doesn't um, have a role in those. Hiring decisions. They have their own screening. Just screening. Bring it, and that can involve, screening can involve anything up to doing a firm-based interview. Sometimes they'll sit in the interview, but it depends. It is not universal. Mm -hmm. And some of that is, if, if I look to the tech sector, you know, if I look to, say, Google, where I know people working, the size of the recruitment team compared to the size of the number of their hire versus hours is significantly different. Okay. Um, if we want people to sit in, and that's where we ultimately want to get them, we want them to be consultants, not <coughs> just providing candidates, then the volume has got to match what our resources are okay. to do that. Um, so that's where we ultimately want to go. We're looking at different models in this area. Um, and so we... Next up is probation releases. We talked about this uh, a number of times about what the data would actually look like if we aggregate and pulled out more than one year uh, because there are a number of questions at previous HR committee and full committee meetings about what probation releases looked like. Um, this is fiscal 16. Um, and uh, Trustee Hernandez and myself were speaking just before the meeting started about maybe changing this to pie charts, and I think it's good advice. Um, in terms of how we would do it, uh, and that would make it much clearer. Uh, what I would say is, look, if you look at the, make sure you're looking at the same one I am, if you look at the top right in terms of hires and rehires, you see that we hire uh, more African Americans than uh, Caucasian, non-Hispanic, or white. We hire more Asians than either in 2016. Uh, when you look at the probation releases, you see African Americans uh, are a high number in terms of 14 but so is the white population. The Asian population, 
uh, is low in probationary releases, but then you uh, move over to the bottom left box and you see the a Asian terminations, and that is all terminations, voluntary, involuntary, and probationary, are not too far off what we would expect in terms of the hiring. It is that there are a disproportionate number uh, of African Americans terminated in probation release and of and Caucasian in this year. And um, one of the areas we've seen is that we have a very diverse employee population. Uh, when we look at it, it doesn't mean that some departments are not predominantly of one race or ethnicity. Now that's a problem uh, in terms of inclusion. Uh, diversity is e the easier part of it. The inclusion of everyone um, is very difficult to get to, and that's what we have to spend a lot of time doing, meaning that we have departments at John George that are almost entirely African in terms of their employees' heritage background, either in terms of being first generation, and then we have other departments that are almost entirely African-American. And that's where we have to do work on the front end, and HR has to take an active role to say, we need to diversify these departments. You can't simply hire more people that are exactly like you. Yes, that keeps a diverse employee population in the aggregate, but when we get into the micro, it simply doesn't work uh, because then you get interaction problems between the various departments. If I was to look at the SNFs over on Almeida, we have at least one where almost the entire population is Filipino. That is not unusual in SNFs. Um, it isn't the, the experience we have at Fairmont, but it is on, on Almeida. And if you involve them in panel interviews, the employees, which you want to do to engage them, then they hire more people like themselves to the exclusion of others. So it's not the diversity piece that's problematic in the aggregate, it's the inclusion, the willingness to bring other people into your department that are different than you. Um, and that's where we're doing a lot of work right now in terms of training and at least Marie, Marie, Marie arrived and is doing a lot of work around this uh, at the moment. I'll just skip forward to, to 17 so you get uh, a similar view. Again, you see that we hire more Asian and African American than white. The, the other ethnicities are smaller numbers. Uh, and then probation releases, again, um, are high. What we talked about just before we started is a number of the areas, as I just mentioned, uh, food nutrition services and EBS have heavier African-American populations. They are higher turnover departments. Uh, that's a problem, and again, it's this front-end piece about hiring and retaining employees rather than churning through them uh, at a fast rate. If we hire someone, termination in the first six months should be rare. It should not be regular. And so that I see that as the underlying problem. Now, it plays out demographically here, and that, that's concerning. But really, the underlying issue is those specific departments. What are the managers doing? What specifically do they consider when they're interviewing people? What is tending to happen when you dig into the data is there are African-Americans leaving, and then more African-Americans are hired into the department. So it doesn't appear that they're avoiding hiring uh, people of that race, but their turnover in those specific departments where the demographic is of one particular ethnicity are, are playing out in a negative way. And that's the part we have to fix. So can I add to this, our conversation earlier? Uh, I would also suggest at least at some point placing a, a, a little bit even deeper context on the diversity, and that would be um, to look at uh, the diversity of senior management, middle management, and, and team leads or supervisors, because that's the other way in which you're going to improve your 
uh, long-term inclusion and diversity statistics, right? So I think when people can see that, gee, if I work hard here, I might become a manager too, yeah. then I'm going to stick it out, I'm going to try harder, I'm going to engage. Yeah. When it feels like there's no chance for that, then, you know, there's a more likelihood that people disengage. So you and I talked about yeah. that pie graph, but perhaps the other layer to this is to look at where that diversity is, because you're right, there is, I mean, just looking at these, if I understand this correctly, in 2017, <clears throat> you had almost 20 African Americans, blacks, uh, on probationary release, yeah. and they represent, of the total, over 1,200 individuals, is that right? Correct. Okay. So, um, you know, it may be a function of the role yeah. and not necessarily more so ethnicity. And I, and I want to just understand that pattern. Yeah. I'm sure you do too. Yeah, absolutely. But I don't think that's actually, I think the 1,200 is the actual total. The total employee population, right? That's correct. It's exactly. in a probation people have been released on probation if they have been here for longer than a certain six months. Right. And so, but if the people hired in 17, a little under 500 uh, were African American. Right. And uh, just a, let's call it 18 to 19 of them were right. released on during the probationary period. Um, when you look at the white population, a little under 400 were hired in that period, and about 13 were released in that probationary period. What is disproportionate is the number of Asian employees hired, which was over 500, uh, and then a low number of them were released during that probationary period. Um, and it isn't we want more Asians or more Caucasians or people of mixed race released, it's when we want more of everyone not released. And the question is, I think, to uh, Maria's point, as a function of the departments into which these groups are hired, and that we've got to work very hard with the managers, and I would let you know we're working with those managers in various ways. And to Maria's point as well, I mean, that if the diversity of new hires and new hires may be just one more chart, or as you say, one more layer, where, where, what's the diversity of new hires? For um, in management positions, whether clinical or or um, administrative, versus I think I, we can call out the managerial in a typical form, like an EEO report. What I think we would find there is um, we're actually relatively diverse. The gender diversity is what I think will be the area we want to do most work on. We know that, and that's the area we're focused on for that. It's diverse ethnically in terms of managers across the organisation, but it's the gender diversity we want to build on because I think that's for the managerial and leadership time. I just saw a map at a corporation where they showed um, something quite useful for this discussion, which is in terms of the first, say, the bottom rung of the organization, what's the range of gender diversity and ethnic diversity, then at supervisor level, yeah. then at manager, and then, yeah. you know, executive, and so on. And you do see the trend line going very right. down in terms of both gender and ethnic. It, it's really helpful to know where we are. I'm, yeah. I'm not saying that we're perfect. It's just that should give us some reason to think, you know, are, are we mentoring and sponsoring and coaching and developing people so that when they're here, they feel, I have a real opportunity to, to be uh, seen as a leader at some point. And, and that does influence when people think about quitting. 
you know, if they feel like there's no hope of any advancement, well, they're going to go. Yeah. Yeah. We, we, we can slice the data up in terms of leadership and that we're happy to provide that. I think it's useful for us to discuss it in this, in this open forum because it does, one, it's a key issue for us. We want more females in the higher leadership positions. Uh, you would see a decline in um, leaders in some areas uh, and it is disproportionate considering that a high percentage of employees in healthcare are female. Mm -hmm. you know. the, the other, if I may add, another interesting point is, is obviously as you get to um, successive layers of leadership in the organization, the numbers become smaller. So, mm, sure. uh, you know, one person as a percentage is significantly more than it is if you're looking at and a denominator that's much larger. Um, and so there's the, there's a sort of um, uh, temporal evolutionary nature of this that someone pointed out to me recently uh, uh, as we look for executive vacancies and, and you may know that we just filled one uh, uh, with a, a we, it took us a while and part of it was making sure we had a diverse uh, candidate pool and uh, that was gender ethnicity uh, a whole host of factors um, and we ended up with a Caucasian male uh, and I uh, was talking to the team not that that's bad uh, actually I think we have a really talented candidate uh, and excited uh, what it's going to bring to the organization. Um, but I was talking to one of the uh, senior leaders in another part of the organization uh, who happens to be a woman, uh, is one of our VPs, about another vacancy and my desire you know, uh, to try to expose diversity in that role as well. And she's been here for uh, a fairly long period of time, that north of 10 years. And she said, you know, it's, it's, I thought about, she reflected on the comments she saw me later and said, I thought about what you said, and uh, and I certainly appreciate it. She said, it's very fascinating because it's, it's this evolution that I've seen. She said, at one point, uh, the leadership in uh, the organization, uh, say for the CEO at the time, another man, um, uh, was heavily uh, skewed towards uh, women. That, there was a, um, uh, that the majority of the senior leadership were women, and there were a few men. And she said, and now, like I see that it's more, you know, more men, but you know, it's kind of one of these longitudinal things that she pointed out to me. It didn't necessarily give me uh, um, a. a, a um, less uh, interest and motivation in what I'm trying to do, but it did provide just that perspective of just looking at it uh, over time and, you know, depending on how long people stay in roles and how long, or how much turnover you have in that uh, around the opportunity then to recalibrate or, or address some of these or can be few and far. And there's more, I mean, as you know, as you pointed out, clinical, uh, especially nursing, tends to be more female. And, yeah. And, um, but working in government for my whole career, public service tends to be more from that. Sure. Yeah. So. Well, you would, what we would want to see is then more of the senior leaders being female mm -hmm. because you would expect from right. that's the base upon which people learn and grow. And so that's what we want to see represented throughout the organization. Um, you know, most of the most of healthcare operation is nursing. Not all of it, obviously, the physician piece. That demographic is coming close to 50-50 now mm -hmm. in terms of training programs. Uh, but most of the hospital operation is nursing, and that's highly represented by females, and you would want them, most of the leaders that come through that to be female. Except so, at some point you have to be careful, because in this yes. instance, males are the underrepresented class. Yes. And so my, my wish is that we have a blend and a balance, yep. but it is true there are more female nurses, so we need to be you know, cautious. Um, at the, at the end of the day, um, I simply want to know that our environment is an inclusive one. 
and where people can see their future here and people feel that they belong, that they're really a part of a team that really embraces the mission and vision of, of what we do. And so I, I think some of this data helps us understand probably more for you, Tony, where are the pockets of um, resistance to that idea of inclusion and, as, as a value and yeah. diversity as a goal. Mm -hmm. And we need to know that so that we can intervene. Um, as a macro issue, I, I mean, we're faced with what all healthcare is faced. The pipeline for physicians and, you know, um, senior level talent among ethnic diversity is very small, relatively speaking. So we need to be careful of, um, you know, setting ourselves up for our thinking. We're always going to have you know, 10 Latino doctors uh, ap apply for a job here. Right. That might not happen for a while. Right. I mean, the numbers are just, you know, what they are. So so I, I'm more concerned if we can identify that there is a pocket or a place or two that we need to work on. Let's let's do that. Yeah. And That's good enough. And before, before we move on, I, yeah. oh, sorry, Jeff, go ahead. Oh, yeah, just a real quick question. I maybe you covered it on the dashboard. Uh, terminations, does that include uh, voluntary departure? Exactly. Okay, I thought everything's included then. Okay. Um, just to, to wrap this up, I'm going back to the dashboard to the, um, the, the new housing um, resident, the residential resident data in the dashboard. Okay. That we're just discussing, you point out um, the initiatives to support the goal, creating partnerships with local community organizations, and um, there are a number of organizations that are supporting diversity in Oakland and East Bay, yeah. and there's a number on um, outside that cruise organization that um, that is training diverse um, clinicians and placing them um, in in acute and ancillary positions. So there are these organizations. I appreciate that. That's a direction to go, and I think that'll help us. Good. Uh, the last thing I'll mention on the uh, 18 is you'll see that over time, uh, the Hispanic and Latino population uh, in the top left, as you're looking at it, is growing year over year, and that's what we would expect uh, as the, the the community changes in terms of its demographic. Um, and uh, the African American population is equally declining in terms of the overall makeup. Um, I don't think that's either a good or bad thing. It's a reality to the makeup of the environment that surrounds us, and it's going to play out over a number of years. As the population in Oakland also becomes more Caucasian in its makeup, and this being our major sign, people wanting to work here, that's probably going to play out. We just need to keep an eye on it and keep balance and make sure that people, to your point, feel included and that this is a place they can work. We do have pockets, as I mentioned earlier, departments where we think we have very specific work to do, and we're doing it with those leaders there to make sure that people do feel included and, and where there are issues around the management that we're working with those management to make sure that that culture is moving in the right direction. Um, you've asked on a couple of occasions for exit interview data. I uh, do it on several occasions because, as I said, we didn't have enough data, and I didn't want to put something in front of you that was insufficient. Uh, now we have uh, 510 completed surveys. Uh, this is for everyone who leaves the organization uh, uh, can participate. We make three phone calls, or the company we use uh, you, uh, makes three phone calls. People choose to participate or not talk participate. Uh, we put in place this contract in 2016, uh, and everyone that's left since this day has received those phone calls when they exit the institution and are able to provide feedback. <coughs> uh, so voluntary and involuntary, uh, all locations at all levels within the organization. 
if an issue is raised as a, as a compliance issue, uh, we get a flag uh, from the company that's fed through HR, and then if necessary, an investigation is conducted. That might be a cursory conversation, or it may be something as detailed as, as, as a raw investigation because we find there's some um, action that's going on there that we need to deal with. But it varies from an employee being upset that they were terminated and angry, uh, which is not unexpected. It doesn't mean we don't need to hear about it. Uh, to something that is concerning, uh, and we find out things and take, and take action in, in those individual departments. Um, what we did here, um, and Lisa Marie's team did this, is we separated out that, that when we get something back, we get big buckets in voluntary career time, but that is broken out into smaller groupings. And so, each person gives a primary reason they left the organization, uh, and then it's broken out into these smaller numbers, or those, these smaller categories, laid off because of job elimination, fired, so on. So it gives us a sense of why people have left the organization, and then a more detailed reason. We do get some verbatim comments that they say something wasn't working in their life or something changed, uh, and then they can share that with it. And again, if there's something from a compliance standpoint that we need to deal with, we deal with it. You see that retirements are significant towards the bottom of the page. Almost 10% of all those people who left retired. Uh, and when you look back at the demographic data, we're seeing more Caucasian people who are retiring than are otherwise terminated. And so that's just a demographic shift, and again, not something for us to be concerned about, I don't think, uh, but just a natural evolution of the organization. Um, the involuntaries is a concern uh, because of the percentage. When we look at it, I'm seeing about 17% in total involuntary terminations uh, from this number. That's just higher than we want it to be. Uh, it doesn't mean that each and every one of them couldn't necessarily be justified. It, it does mean that as a percentage of overall every year, we're firing close to 20% of all those people who left the organization. And I think that, from our perspective, is too high. We've got to do greater work around turning employees around, coaching, developing, and then seeing if we can get them back on track before we go down a path of termination. And t Tony, I would also look at the shift schedule piece yeah. there, which is also 10% or almost 11. I mean, sometimes out of retaliation, someone can get their shift changed, and that's really not going to be captured. That shouldn't happen. If it does, it's a problem. And I, Anne is still here from SEIU. I would think that if someone violated in that way, I would want the, the union to grieve it right. because we should be following seniority rules. People get the shift they hide into, and from that point on, we follow whatever the rules are within the union contract. If we violate those, I would, I would want to know about it, and I would want us to correct that. Clearly, of course. And I'm simply asking how much follow-up went into that to find out was the shift change or the schedule change something that you know they could actually justify. I mean, if the employee is saying, that the sh their shift or schedule change yeah. in the work context, and maybe in their personal life. Right. What this typically means is, and this is unfortunate, I think I've mentioned before, if you look at nurses particularly, um, they often, the data will show you nurses leave because they don't feel professionally rewarded and developed. They take up the next job because of shift, location, and pay. Mm. And this pattern continues. And often people will take a job in an organization they want to work for with the belief at some point they're going to be able to change shift. They often believe that ability to change shift will come much sooner than it really will. And at that point they then say, I can't do this anymore. 
all their work, their pass, they're driving here from Martinez and past 10 hospitals along the way, and there's a shift available, it's their shift, and they're on the night shift here. They move around much more quickly, healthcare workers, than uh, people in tech. They just shift on a, a much faster basis than other professionals uh, because of the shift and where they're actually working. And that causes problems for us where we have to replace them and obviously interrupts their own career development within the employer. Uh, but I do think it is something that is concerning, but it is played out in most healthcare organizations. People take jobs because of shift location and pay. They do care about who they work for. They do care about the mission. But they also have life issues. And if I'm potentially a single mother working night shift and I've got a concern about my child's daycare, then I'm going to take a shift that allows me to do my job. Well, Good. Jim, I'm just curious. There's nothing here that says I left because I didn't like X. Uh, we will go. There, there are some things around managers and environment in this no, data, but, but not for shift. Okay. Um, the other career, you know, people, you know, relatively small number leaving for development opportunities, 4%. Mm -hmm. uh, some people left for school, again, about 4%. They went back to do a master's, maybe they went to nursing school, they went on to do something else. Uh, different type of work altogether. That's not unusual, again, 3%, not a huge number. Uh, promotional opportunities, that's a good thing. You know, if we can't promote them and someone's ready, then good luck to them. We hope they're successful one day they come back. We we'll like them to do it here, but again, we have limited opportunities for people to move up. If we can, we want to develop our own and keep them here, but if they're ready to move on, we want them to go and seek out a career opportunity somewhere else. Um, relocation, about almost 8% of people relocated, the, of the 510 that responded. And so sometimes it's a spouse, but that's a fairly limited number. Uh, but employee initiated is almost 8% of those people who responded to this, which is, uh, again, 510 employees. This is the, the part to your question of people not liking something. This is uh, a number uh, from the employees where they're indicating that they have an issue with their manager, whether it's they're not feeling supported, communication, it's relatively small and, quite frankly, I would tell you, surprising to me. I thought communication from manager would be the top issue, uh, the ability to get information up and down, because um, that, that's often a complaint in engagement surveys. But of those interviewed and that responded, communication from their manager was not a big issue. Uh, professional behavior was, uh, as we see, uh, a little bit below 4% of all those people who responded. Yeah. Is that a big deal? Uh, the professional behavior is a concern. Yeah, uh, right. yeah, yeah. The question is, what is it? And we have data behind this that would tell us whether it is, someone would say, how people define a professional behavior varies. Uh, and it varies about whether they were terminated uh, involuntarily or they left. <coughs> Um, and so it's a pretty varied amount of feedback, we have, but we have it down in the background so we can see in the individual departments and whether we need to correct it. And, and Tony, this is a 500 plus? 510 people. And what percentage is that of the total folks that have? We get it. We're just about 50% of those requested respond. So about half of those people terminated respond. It's around 50%. I'll get you an exact number, but my recollection is it's just about 50%. If it gets too low, then the data becomes invalid. But at this point, it's... 50% is better. Yeah. yeah. And, and it's just because, you know, those that are motivated to answer this stuff might be different than those who yeah. never respond. And you took, like most surveys, you get the extremes. Those that were happy and those that were very, un very happy, very unhappy, and the people in the middle get 
drown out by that, but we have a big enough set now, which is why I wanted to hold out reporting it, so we had something that we felt that would be washed out and equalized. Uh, a number of people left because of their job, you know, availability of resources, that's concerned, workload stress, again, that's relatively low, particularly in a healthcare environment, but just over a percentage, a little bit uh, more than that, so 1.5%. Training is low of those, lack of empowerment, very low in terms, I, I would have expected lack of empowerment to be higher and communication to be higher, generally as, as big issues. That is not what we're getting back from employees who have left. Um, the environment, again, for the most part, does not seem to be terrible. Organizational culture, 2.4% of the, of the 510, still a concern. We want to look and understand that, but it doesn't seem like a huge number of treatment of employees. Um, Again, we have data behind this that would help us understand it. And then facilities and physical environment, diversity, ethnic and gender is low, and mission and values is low. People are not leaving for those reasons, they're leaving for others. Uh, and so that, that is a good thing. You know, all terminations where, where people voluntarily left and we thought they were a great employee are sad. We want to keep everyone, but we're not going to be able to. But seeing this area to be very low is, is a positive thing around the environment. Um, health and family, you know, when, you know no work-related health issue, so a family member or they had an issue and they, they had to move away from work, again, not, not a particularly high number. Child and elder care, we actually have some pretty good programs around this uh, for child and elder care that we put in our, to our benefits, so we think we've addressed uh, this issue about as well as we can. Um, and then total rewards, base pay is a fairly small number. I think that's a good sign. <laughs> and benefits is effectively no one, yeah. you know, point out. Clearly, some, someone put it in, but relatively very low uh, in terms of benefits and also pay. So people aren't leaving for those reasons, despite what we occasionally hear. Um, they are leaving for other reasons, and we are we dig into this behind the scenes. Um, this again. Uh, can, excuse me. Can, yes. Was it, can people say one reason only? Is it just uh, the primary reason? Okay. They can, we have the data on the others. The problem in terms of reporting it out here is it will become incredibly busy because you could put five different oh, reasons. Oh, no, that's fine. Yeah. I, I was just curious. Yeah, and the answer is yes, they can. Um, they can put as many. I don't think they can put as many as the market is limited, but they can certainly put more than one hmm. uh, as for the reason they left. And often it is a combination of issues. Uh, reasons by gender, and so. When we look at this, it breaks it out by people who left for that specific reason. What you see is sometimes 100% of the people are female or 100% are male. Um, that, may, that means that's the only reason one person may have terminated putting that reason code down. They happen to be male or female. So to Delvecchio's earlier point around the, the size of the group, um, it's not that useful. You know, we broke it out so we could see it, but it really isn't that useful uh, to look at. Certainly not in this format, so we're going to look at it in a different way and see if we can get information that is more actionable. Uh, there's nothing that, that leaks out. Look at the treatment of employees. Is that one? Um, it is entirely female, if I recall, looking at this. I can't see it up on there, but I, I have yeah. looked at this data. That's a very, when you go back, that's a very small number of employees. I think it's actually about one employee who put that down. And so that's why I'm saying we're not finding this to be particularly useful, but I did want to give it to you. We will keep working on this in the back end to see if there's something we can do to finesse the way we present it so it's, it's useful. Yeah, uh, like the, the mission and values of the organization was one guy. Yeah. yeah. And so it was male, and, and that's where it played out. 
Again, this is busy, but we're trying to find ways to get you. It's very colorful. Yeah, uh, to get to get you the data. It's like a DNA. Twenty-three and me. To get you the data, uh, but it's very difficult to report this out without it becoming a fifty-slide deck. Uh, these are just charts that show you the makeup of uh, the ethnicity of people left for this specific reason. Um, and again, the numbers may be low or they may be incredibly high. And so again, we've got to do some work around this to make it more actionable or more visibly usable uh, for you. So, so Tony, just let's look at the shift schedule piece. No, again, that one had enough people. It seemed to have a number. And based on what this particular graph suggests, it's a total mix. It's, it's a big mix, but the largest mix there is African American. So um, that's that, that's making me wonder a little yeah. bit. Yeah, just it's something to think about. And Absolutely. again, because we talked about this earlier, that you know, as the region changes and as people's lives change, of course, they may be looking for a job that has a better shift schedule for mm -hmm. them. Um, and and. I hope that's true. Yeah, yeah. we we can certainly look in the sort of the more detailed information yeah. on which units specifically those were intercepted, something like that. Yeah. Um, so where does this go? So um, Lisa Marie's team's been working on a set of reports from our HRS department, so they can action at the ground level with managers, directors, changes that need to occur. So the business partners have access to this information. They can then go and work with the managers and see what the issues are, if they're real. Uh, you know, someone reporting, I'm dissatisfied, I was terminated. Maybe, there still may be a real problem there, and we need to know about that and understand it. And the business partners have access to all of this data and then can interact with the managers and the, their managers leader, so the directors and the vice presidents where necessary. If there's real feedback, as I said, we get a flag if there's a compliance concern, and then we do a thorough investigation. Um, and HLBPs inform then the directors, vice presidents, and above if necessary. So if there's a real issue in the department, we're concerned about the behavior of the manager, then, then they will inform us. There's a, a number of issues came up around an individual who that was, doesn't matter, the, the manager was working hard, and then we were able to put the manager through a number of different classes. They self-identified, I see where I was failing, here's what I'm gonna do to change, and then we monitor and make sure that that individual is improving. We can then check back in, we can look at the exit interview data and other information, and to say, are we still going in the right direction here, or do we need to do something else? And that allows us to try and solve that issue directly with the manager. How does, um, how does the, um, uh, job elimination and probationary job um, probationary layoff or probationary, uh, probationary termination. termination so probationary termination um, how do how does that happen is there a standard way that that happens across the organization and when does HR get involved does that happen just at the department level or is there when someone's evaluation they're getting documented and then the manager says well hasn't been working for the last four months and so is there some point where they before uh, uh, some standard a month or two months before the layoff that HR so, gets involved? Well it, it, it's a it's a this is a typical HR answer it depends right so an employee's in the probationary period for example 
uh, is tardy a number of times. Uh, they're not subject to the disciplinary process because they're, they're still in a probationary period. We'd still want the manager to do the right thing, which is have a conversation, coach the employee, and try and get them on track. If they're not able to do so, the employees doing their best in that period of time, that's the best time you're going to have the employee. So if you're six weeks in and the employee hasn't shown up for work once on time, you're probably going to release them. Uh, and you would get engaged in HR at that point because you're terminating someone's employment. You would want the manager to go through some attempt to turn the employee around. But again, it depends because a probation release is very What about something that's more um, discretionary? It would, again, it would depend on what it was and how severe it was. And then you would ask the question, how much time are you going to invest in this individual to get them on track while they're doing their very best right now? We have the option uh, in working with them to extend the probation. And so some of them may not be getting well, but they may be pretty close. Um, then we want the manager to work with that individual to try and get them to be successful. There's no value to the organization, to the manager, or, or to the individual being terminated of the termination. It, it's a traumatic event. The person left the job usually to come here. We want them to succeed. Now, it isn't always going to work out, uh, but we want to do our best because when that doesn't work out, they then fill in another requisition, go through a process that they don't really like. Right. Then we will do recruitment. We hire a person again. They go through the orientation again. Now, there's a traumatic event happening to the employer that left as well. And so it's not useful to do this. And so. Um, it's going to depend because the situations vary pretty dramatically. It could be a patient care issue. It could be around time, just showing up to time, uh, work on time. Or it could be something that, as you say, is discretionary. But the discretion could be, uh, I'm using time because it's a very easy one and, and non-offensive. They could have shown up five days a week late. Now, I'd want the manager to ask them why. Do you have an issue? Do you need a leave? Is it, would it be better for you to think about something else for a while? Um, but again, the manager's got to get the work done. And so there are conflicts all around here that you try and work out. Um, but in that period, your hope is the employee's bringing their best work and their best ability. But we shouldn't underestimate people going through all kinds of things in their life, and it's very difficult to say what you would do in a specific situation until it arises. HR comes involved uh, at various points. Sometimes the manager's concerned because something pretty severe has happened. Other times they're attempting to make it work and it's not. And other times they will arrive too late. A day before the six months is up and say, I want to release this employee. We'll have you coached and discuss No, we're not going to help you terminate that employee. That's not, that's not okay. Right, and so it does vary pretty dramatically depending upon the situation. Um, but again, as I, as I mentioned earlier, the goal is for us to do a better job on the hiring side. And that, if we can invest more there, in terms of selection, we're going to find ourselves in a much better place and serving employees. If, if someone's not a fit in terms of values and mission and, and what the environment is like, us hiring them for six months is no use to them. You know, they're going to then have to leave, go find something else, and, and we're going to have to find another employer, and that, that's not helpful to us or to them. Um, so I think we have a couple more items. Employment. Uh, Don't you need our feedback on what's going to go on the dashboard? On the dashboard. On to the board. Yeah. I thought we would agree that, which was it was going to be turnover and it was workplace uh, injuries. And you asked for a parking spot on the full dashboard for uh, engagement as a moment of the data. Okay. Right. Right. Okay. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
Um, so you have a retreat coming up, uh, and you're, I know you're working on the agenda right now. Uh, as we look forward to sort of the strategy of AHS and where we are in our strategic plan, I thought it's useful to, this is somewhat retrospective and then somewhat prospective. Um, AHS is a complicated place to work. It is the most complicated place that I have ever worked. Uh, it's a great place to work, uh, but it comes with challenges because of the nature of employment here. And so I'm just going to give you a little walk down memory lane uh, and then come to where we are. So as most of you know, uh, we've been in the area for over 150 years now. Um, AHS has been, or the infirmary as it was at one point, uh, has been serving this community for a very long time, a family. Um, in the 20s, family became the first public rehab facility west of the Mississippi's, and Highland Hospital became a teaching hospital in 1927. So we've been on this side for a very long time serving this community, uh, but probably simpler times as well. Uh, we launched Ambulatory Health. Uh, in 84, Fairland Hospital was the first hospital to provide uh, AIDS care in the East Bay, mm. uh, and has been doing that ever since, or we have been doing that ever since, and, and it's a great service to the community. Um, 92, John George was opened, uh, and is providing acute and emergency psychiatric care to the East Bay since then. The county, in many ways, was forward-thinking in combining all those things together. Uh, it pulled everything together with Fairmont, Highland, John George, and it later pulled in the FQHC clinics. And so it really did build a health system while it was still under the county's control. Um, but made a decision that it wanted to sort of, I see the, us as a boat on a dock and they wanted to push us out to sea. And I don't mean that as a negative reference, but as they sort of moved us away from the county a little bit. We still have a safety net for Alameda County, but they created that separation from the county. Uh, and they passed the law, or legislation was passed to allow that to occur, and we became the hospital authority, uh, which holds the licenses for the organization. And we changed our name in 2013 to Alameda uh, Health System from Alameda County Medical Center. Then uh, in that year, we had legislation passed. And what that legislation allowed us to do was to acquire other facilities. Uh, and for those employees at those facilities or hired in the future into those facilities, not to receive uh, the public pension plan of Sarah. Um, there was a lot of discussion and a lot of negotiation with community uh, activists and the mayor of Almeida and also San Leandro about what would happen with those facilities. It was clear that if we acquired them at that point in time and the employees received the SARA, the whole system would go down financially. It was just not a viable option for us. Uh, and so legislation was passed. Uh, the unions agreed either to be supportive or neutral on the issue uh, to allow this legislation to pass. Uh, what it did is say that people who had never been a SARA would not go into a SARA if hired into those facilities broadly, and I won't bore you with the rest of it. I did put this down there so you could read it, but I left the rest of the legislation out. And that's, that's not unusual. That's not, it, it, it required a change in the law, but that's not unusual in public organizations or, or in public retirement systems, I guess, to have um, a change where subsequent hires would not be eligible for an existing um, retirement system. Um, 
I would defer to others on that. It's not my area of expertise, so I don't, I don't know how frequently it occurs. Uh, what it did is simply allow us to acquire sound there under an Alameda hospital, which we wouldn't have otherwise done. Um, I've seen that type of thing happen with the, the type of plan offering that yeah. the uh, plan right. offers. That's not what necessarily, I mean, yeah. yeah, not necessarily that an employer who is in a plan would exclude some employees from the plan entirely. Right, so that's the that's the unusual part of it. That yes. To me, uh, yeah. my limited experience, but I don't, I don't know if Mike or others yeah. know differently. And so while we remained a public employer, they would not receive that plan, and we created our own plan, and unrepresented employees from that point forward would go into the HS plan, and other employees would go into whatever plan was bargained by their union. Um, and I'll, I'll come back to that in a few moments. In, in 13, we acquired San Leandro. Uh, so a 93-bed facility, uh, 265,000, serving that population to 265,000 people, level two emergency department, 13 beds, and serves 34,000 patients here, or it did at that time. Um, this was a, a brief history uh, that our marketing team had uh, and were able to find on San Leandro. For so it's been around since 59. It went through, you see here, it went through many iterations, was sold on, on many occasions or moved on many occasions. Eventually, um, Sutter sued uh, the Eden District to acquire the facility because an agreement had been made that it could acquire the facility. Um, Alameda Health System indicated we would close the facility and have an acute rehab and urgent care only. Uh, that's why Eden sued it, so they could maintain a full service hospital. Uh, ultimately, Sutter Health prevailed took the facility, AHS got the facility from Sutter Health, uh, but agreed to maintain a full service hospital. Uh, and the plan had been, partly because of the ACERA issues, that the facility would move our acute rehab, which would be larger than our future intended acute rehab at San Leandro, and then simply have an urgent care. Because on the horizon, it was clear that Kaiser were gonna open a, a new hospital with an ED, and under Umtala patients go to, can go to any ED. Uh, and we've seen a growth of other urgent cares in that area as well. And we have seen, probably over the last couple of years at least, if not longer, a decline in emergency room visits, not just in our system, but across the county. The only facility I think that's seen an increase in emergency visits is Kaiser at San Leandro. Uh, and so that was the plan at the time. The, the plan shifted. And so we kept a full service hospital open. Uh, Six months later, we acquired Almeida Hospital, uh, or not so much acquired it, we took over the operation through a joint powers agreement. Um, when we did that, uh, we acquired a, you know, 100 acute beds, 35 subacute beds, and then we got the skilled nursing facilities. Um, with that, we got a, you know, 700 employees across those three facilities, uh, and they came into the system. Um, it, there's a clear, and five million dollars, five million and ten million dollars of debt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so we, we worked our way through those problems uh, we faced. Uh, we moved the employees across to be uh, employees of HS. We negotiated transition agreements with each of the unions that existed. Uh, but again, much like San Leandro, so that community for a very long time. Um, and has got a long, proud tradition of serving that area. Um, and when we added these facilities, um, we grew significantly. So you'll see uh, 3,226 employees in January of 2013. 
uh, today, uh, just under 5,000 employees. And so that's substantial growth, 35% uh, of it from adding those facilities. Uh, but we have grown significantly in the core, even if we didn't add those facilities when you look at the numbers. We're now just about 3,700 in the core, where we were 3,200 in 2013. Where's most of that core growth? Is that uh, in our primary care, or is it just? I say I would say spread it right across. I think uh, we grew in the finance area. I think we grew in the care provision areas as well. Mm -hmm. It would be hard. I, I think it, it would be maybe possible, but it's hard to say. There's one area that grew particularly more than others, although it probably is the case. I think we will find that we weren't collecting revenue no, that's true. to almost a negligent degree, and that's the wrong word, but, it, but we were doing very poorly because we didn't have a structure. We had a structure to collect block grants of governmental transfers and not to collect insurance. The Affordable Care Act passed, we had to grow a system so we could do this. We liked IT systems, they had to be built, we had to hire people to operate them. And so I would say it spread across some of the support service, but also the patient care areas as well. It's interesting, I just read, a, I don't know if it was in Health Affairs or somewhere, but the, the conversation or the article was that unfortunately the ACA created a, a rise in administrative staffing. Uh, just to manage all of yeah. that and you know clinical yeah. is not necessarily ground and yet they're the ones that need to provide yeah. more services to more people and hopefully at some point you get back to um, a, a more proportionate amount of administrative versus clinical because yeah. yeah. we, we need clinicians we need the front lines to be able to do what we do and the back end has to be there but with efficiencies in either technology that we're hoping for obviously with the um, Epic. I mm -hmm. hope that that gets better. I'd, I'd add uh, two points. Um, sorry, I didn't, I didn't see this particular article, but I, I've seen a similar one, and it was more about uh, the, the increase in uh, that administrative structure that happened not on the delivery side, but on the health plan side, yeah. uh, because of how the, the, the funds flow. And, yeah. I, and the other sort of interesting irony around that was that uh, on the health plan side, too, it was uh, clinical people necessary to do the administrative work. So people with clinical background doing administrative work, not people with clinical backgrounds to do more of the clinical service work, which is also uh, interesting. The other point uh, to your question, Trustee DeVries, about uh, the source of it. So I think Tony's right that uh, uh, some pro proportion of it is finance to build up the finance shop. Another portion of it, particularly as of today, is IT uh, because uh, it was a shift in the, in the uh, staffing model. So we went from uh, around this time, largely uh, a heavily contracted workforce to then a workforce to now a more locally employed workforce with an increase relative to the EPIC uh, no. project. So, and that's, that's almost 80 yeah. uh, additional roles. And, yeah. that, and that was the same model that really occurred in finance where we had used free resources and other contracts that people moved in. Trustee Jensen, you had a question. So that growth is more shift. I suspect that uh, you know every year that we're always trying to keep up with um, with with management and with quality standards and, and you know changes in um, clinical, especially clinical um, requirements for all the services. So that tends to. I also said that the the prior board to yourselves um, worked with um, Mike's predecessor on compliance heavily and they historically hadn't been one. I think some of the areas that are now built out around risk compliance didn't in fact exist. And we built them, you know, over a number of years 
that over and you can't go back once you put those things in place. They were required. They didn't necessarily exist. Uh, we then added these two new facilities uh, with nine, ten bargaining units in them. And not just on the HR side, because we didn't grow too much there, but work comes with that. And so then we had to go in those other areas to support. We didn't really recognize the economies of scales that we wanted to, I think, from becoming a system, because we maintained separate employment for those facilities. And so we became you know, a system in name, but operating separately. And so we had the cost of running three employers while we were trying to be a single system. And so I think by the nature of the avoidance of employees going into a cell, we created a whole host of other problems um, but it was, as far as I can tell, as I look back at the history of what, what we did and why, it just was unaffordable. And therefore, both of those facilities, I, it's hard to say what would have happened without me, that they were doing their own work in terms of the hospital district, courting other potential partners. It was clear that San Leandro was going to close uh, if we didn't come in. And so it was the right choice at that moment in time for that leadership team and that board, and they made it. Now we have to deal with what that really looks like and how we're going to work our way through it to become a more effective and efficient healthcare system. And so we see these numbers in growth, but we operate as separate employers. And so for employees today, I wanted to run you through the history and how we got here, but what does it actually look like to work here today? So if I'm a director of nursing at Highland and I want to be a director of nursing at Alameda Hospital, you will have to terminate your employment and you would then go into that facility. We would cash out your PTO, your seniority would go away, and we would treat you as a separate employee. Going back to the legislation earlier, we treat it as a separate entity, and so they would go into that facility. The same is true if you leave San Leandro or Alameda. And so this does not facilitate us to develop people, because you may have a manager in, so what is a large department at Highland, who's ready to become a director, in a community hospital, great next step for them, great for the community hospital, they're coming from a trauma center, that's not really an option for someone who's got 20 years in a Sarah. They don't want to go, that means we're not doing what we want to in terms of developing them, the talent's not going to where we need it within the organization. How, what, what's the, what are the options, what, what, what could be done to does that, would that require another change in the law in some way not to, not to eliminate that? Obviously, we don't want to force people or, 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 or we can't expand, we can't in isolation expand a Sarah to add whoever we want. So. Right. But can they take their benefits with them? Uh, they Today, our current construct is if you leave the core and go to some other, yeah. you, you leave them. I, I the other thing is that, that our, um, our benefits at San Leandro and Alameda do not include Kaiser. Um, they include the AHS Insure Plan. The AHS Insure Plan is a great plan. It's a, if you get your care in the system, it's free. Um, if you get it within the network, it is an incredibly low cost, and if you go outside the network, it's still a good plan. Uh, but we don't offer Kaiser there, and the PTO plans and others are, are di different across the different employers. So um, there's an incompatibility in the pensions as we right. set up right now. Mm -hmm. it, it, was, it was a simple environment when it was ACMC and even as HS before, just before we acquired those facilities. Mm -hmm. um, you know, simple things could be, you know, I observed a practice where we would create a job and obviously unions have a right to claim the job if they believe it falls within their representation. Now, 
at the time, as far as I can tell, back in 2010, 11, 12, that would happen, and ultimately the union would say, yes, we believe that is our representation. The employee goes in. No harm, no foul, because they were in a salary to start with. They continue in the same pension plan. If today we thought it was an unrepresented role, and we went through that process, let's say, with ACME and the management union, they would have been in the HS plan for the entire time until they had become represented by ACME. At that time, then, they're going to have to contribute 10% of their own money into that plan, which they didn't when they took the job. And so that creates a problem in and of itself. And so we have to ensure that we work with the union before we post the job. And that, that part's not problematic, but it is a very different environment than it was in a very simplistic, you know, a simplistic uh, process like that has to change. And now we're trying to manage that across 17 bargaining units and across what effectively is three separate employers. Um, the varying PTO plans are significantly different, and I'll talk more about that in a minute. And I, I added that as appendices because I don't want to go through it all with you, but I wanted to get some understanding of the complexities of the various plans that we're managing. Um, employee engagement issues are like, people want to do a good job, but let's say I have a HIMSS department, um, health information management, and it all rolls up under one director, but I have employees at all the different facilities with different PTO plans, and I'm trying to manage this work. And ideally, I'd have them all together. We'd have team meetings, which she, she can do. But at the same time, I'm constrained by different rules, by different PTO, different coverage. So when I'm trying to manage the work and get the greatest efficiencies out of the team, I'm not able to do so. Um, operationally, we, we can't really manage people as easily as we'd want to. You'd want to streamline and get some economies of scale out of what we did. Uh, staff doing the same work but by the same manager have very different employment arrangements, you know, representation, different rules. Uh, we can't flow them across facilities. The, the work is owned by different unions at different locations. Uh, high utilization of registry is going to play out from that. You know, we have facilities, I know at Almeida and San Leandro, we had times where we were calling employees off at San Leandro in the OR while we were understaffed in the OR Almeida hospital and we can't just move them over there because we operate effectively as three separate employers. So you end up calling a travel or a registry to make that up because we don't have enough employees. And that, that's not useful. It's not useful to the employees, it's not useful to us, and it's certainly not useful to the patients in the community. Uh, at a higher level, we duplicate resources. So we have three separate medical staffs. That means we privilege three people at three different locations. If necessary, duplication of work. Uh, and, so, and then it becomes difficult to create a unified structure. I think the employees at San Leandro and Almeida have taken to being part of AHS, but I would also say they've maintained some of their old culture. That can be valuable, but it can also be problematic. Now, we are the safety net for the county, uh, and that's what we do at all our facilities. And as people hold on to a culture when there was something else, then that can make it hard for us to move forward on projects we want to do. And it's difficult to have that single culture when we're basically playing out as three separate employers. Then lastly, the labor issues, which I, you know, I put it last because I don't see it as the biggest issue. I think the employee issues, operational issues are larger than this. Uh, but, you know, being in bargaining all the time is not an effective way to run an organization. It's not an effective way to get employee engagement because you're always going from one negotiation to the next. We, we've got CNA open at both locations right now, San Lando and Almeida. We're dealing with that at the same time, unfortunately, we've had reductions in force and you're just lurching from one thing to the next. Even if we do it in a coordinated fashion and we know where we're trying to get to, 
just being in that constant state of negotiating is draining on the organization. My team can deal with it, that's their job, but for the employees it's tiring because you're just going from one negotiation to another. And that causes activity, there are issues that the employees want to get resolved and we're dealing with it on a constant basis. And, and the managers are challenged with multiple contracts. So if I'm again, the HIMS manager is an example, I've got an employer one location covered with one PTO plan and benefit plan here, and I've got another employee at the other side. And we want the managers to be able to help employees, but they've now got this added layer of complexity. And sometimes at the exact same site. That, that's, that's, that's correct. Um, so there's also contractual issues in terms of contracting for with, with insurers, contracting with um, physician groups. Yeah. You know, it, it's it's not you can't merge all of those things together. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then, so the reason we have this discussion is sort of I know you've got the retreat coming up. And you know we're asking for guidance, and I'll defer to Tracy Hernandez and Del Vecchio on where that's going, because I know you guys are working on the agenda. But I thought this was useful to give you some background uh, on the environment in which we work, the environment in which our employees work every day, and then being able to use this as you think through the strategic plan and your discussion at the retreat and where, where we're going as an organisation. You know there are no easy options here. We chose to go for the path of legislation because we felt it allowed us to acquire those facilities and keep them open. And that having a Sarah at that moment in time was not a financially viable option. Other incremental costs are not insignificant. And so at San Leandro Hospital, for example, they use PTO for public holidays. In the core, they have PTO plus paid holidays. The cost of the 10 additional days would be over $2 million. So equalizing, which has been a strategy for the organization, this board, can't all be upwards to the most expensive model. Because at that point, we're driving up our, sorry, I heard it sound sort of economic or business, our cost per unit to a point that's unsustainable. Uh, you know, we have some areas where employees, we wish we could pay them more, and some areas where employees are above the market. And that's not unnatural in organizations, it happens. But everything can't float to the most expensive. Other Policy for the ER, Medicine, EPA, five minutes. Policy for the ER, Medicine, EPA, five minutes. So, go ahead. Uh, so, on that note, we created legislation to avoid putting the employees into a Sarah from San Leandro and Alameda because yeah. the system would have failed had we not. Yes. A Sarah's not getting any cheaper for us. Yeah. I mean, as I understand it, we're, we're probably overpaying yeah. by a huge amount, um, and it, you know it's not sustainable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I don't disagree. I mean, we we have an idea about why or how much we think we're over contributing. We've had an ongoing discussion with Asara, um, and we will continue to do so. Uh, their position is that. Um, the overfunding that we believe exists is the natural uh, outcome of a multi-employer plan. Unfortunately, we believe it all falls against us, as opposed to equalizing out across the other employers over multiple years. Yeah. And that 12 or 14 or 15 million a year could be invested back into the system. Yes. And, into, and could actually create more job security with better care. Is this, is, this, is this a little um, bit more, uh, and I don't know this, I'm asking um, uh, Jerry, you know, people who've worked in public systems, 
Is it unique to have a plan like a Sarah? Well, we evolved, we, 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 we're part of the county, and a Sarah is the county's retirement plan. So it just seems kind of, it, it, there's CalPERS, which I'm very familiar with, which it has, you can participate or not be a public employer. Obviously, Hamilton County decided to have their own plan. And, um, but I guess, what do you, and, and there's a lot legal, a lot, change in law to cover this particular situation, but how do we, what are the options for moving forward? Is there, are we so unique? Is there a, some, um, I mean, we could, we've left the county, we, the boat got pushed away, so what about moving the retirement plan? I mean, I know that people who are currently in the retirement plan, there may be something like, you know, if they really stopped first, Pours, the, the initial one, mm -hmm. that people who were there stayed there until it dwindled down, like we did with the Echo. And, and uh, so the city did with PFERS. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, that's something that I, I'm not asking for an answer. No, but I, I, I think it's a good discussion because I think, you know, we're paying into the pension obligation bond right now that expires, I think, in 2022. Uh, the, the plan will continue to be underfunded. Right? It, it's not outrageous right now, but then it's going to have to continue to close that gap, you know, or keep maintain the closure on the gap. And so how it determines to do that could add longer-term liabilities to us around that underfunding piece. So I, I'm concerned about just the optics of us looking at some of these things, given that we just spent over $200 million on Epic. Um, let's be careful that we're not forgetting we can't do the work without people, right? So my question is, is there any uh, appetite for placing all of our bargaining units in one room and having a fixed amount of dollars that we are willing to negotiate around how these different plans and different benefits get distributed so that it's basically on par with all others? Because I, I, I have faith, <laughs> maybe this is naive, I have faith that if we are more transparent and say this is the cost of having employees in these various plans, we cannot sustain that for the long term. But if we don't want to have to reduce, if we don't want to have to be uh, cutting back, what, what are the real options that the bargaining units would be uh, uh, willing to talk about? And, and it's a give and take. It's not all us paying for everything. But I'm worried if, if we just look at the optics of what we've just spent so much money on, um, it, it feels like we need to say to ourselves, what are we willing to invest in this to make it more um, uh, equitable across all of these different groups and put in front of everyone these various important distinctions of how we could be a whole system. I mean, the fact that I can't quit working at Highland to go work at Alameda, that doesn't make sense. And, and I think everybody would agree. So what would we be willing to compromise on in terms of, you know, um, uh, holiday total days versus here versus there? I, I, can't that be an open... Uh, you have to bargain with each union separate and distinctly for the members that they represent. And 
I, I cannot speak for any union. I don't intend to. I think a union in the current environment find it difficult to give up five days of holiday, for example, so that another union's members could get that same five days. Because if we had a fixed bucket of money, you know, that, because ultimately that's what you're looking at. If we drive up the cost across the board and our reimbursement doesn't go up, then the employees have to go down. Right. And so, you know, we know how much revenue we expect to get. We know the cost of employees is somewhere between 60 and 67% of our total expenses right now are varying. If you drive that up, then the money has to come from somewhere else. I, I would echo everything Tony just said. It's, it's obviously a very, uh, it's a dicey proposition for, for any one entity who has its own set of, uh, of interests, compelling and uh, compelling interests, uh, to think about how they then deal with it. It's our challenge that we have to kind of deal with it for, for everybody, and it's, it's really our challenge to try to make it all work. Uh, uh, but we know that those are the competing factors. The other thing I just say, I want to be clear about this from a context perspective, uh, um, and forgive me if this is too nuanced. We, we haven't spent $2 million or $200 million on Epic. We've committed to a total cost of ownership over 10 years is 200 million, and a significant proportion of that 200 million is actually our own costs. So it's actually workforce. It's labor. Yeah, a lot of that is not going to epic per se. A lot of it is, to be clear, uh, because it is expensive. But a lot of it is the people we had to hire to build the system mm -hmm. to and operate the system. So, I hear you. You missed the last meeting, um, but we are actually quite under budget. Yeah, we're well, so, well, actually well. spend a lot less on that thing. And, and, but with most of, yeah. 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 I, I, I so when people think, because it becomes... I, 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 I don't think it's, I don't know that, I, I don't, I, 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 um, I think we need to be very careful to make that, to draw that, 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 uh, it's not even a comparison. To a connection. That connection, thank you. Because yeah. I think these employee issues and management issues that you've laid out are really significant to the delivery of care and to the ability to invest yourself in a career yeah, at the this system. That's, I think... I agree. And, and, and think about worker morale. If you know that another worker doing the same work that you're doing a few miles away has a, a, you know, this a, you know, package that's just far more than what you... It just, it doesn't feel fair, you know. But, um, but that does happen, and, and there are other <laughs> situations where people have come together to find a way to create parity. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, the worst-case ex example, I saw this at Google, where a person who was employee number 25 doing a, the same job as employee number 3,000, Somebody has all those stock options and somebody doesn't, and they're working right next to each other doing the same job, and they're just not eligible to have that. So, so there are instances where that occurs, right? I, I'm just asking ourselves, what can we commit to in terms of a process that looks at you get this much for this and this much for that, but we have to be able to recoup those costs in some other way. Mm -hmm. um, and and I, I'm not familiar with every single element of the bargaining unit requirements, but it feels like 
you're almost going to have to negotiate this her bargaining unit to well, say, no, no, right? And they have an obligation to their members to represent right. their exactly. members' interests. Understood. Right. Understood. It's just when you put the big picture, and can you speak about that pic mm -hmm. big picture to everyone? Can everybody understand what the big picture is? You can say that, right? Absolutely. Oh, okay. So my point is, given what we just described here as some of these mammoth managerial and operational issues, it, it just feels you have to put on the table, there's only so much money that we can use to manage all of this change that's going to happen. I get that we invested in Epic and some of that is to pay our own people. I still think the optics about that are going to be out there, so I'm just continuing to... Well, that's why we have to... I, I understand that. I, I understand that. So let's look at what would we be saying about investing in this uh, um, discussion um, about how to create a, a more system-wide approach uh, to some of these labor issues, these practices, these operational issues. What are we willing to invest in order to fix them? Because it's going to cost us something. Right, and hopefully right. this yeah. is the first step. Yeah. You know, this this outline is really helpful, and yeah. the discussion, the chart at the end, I think, was very helpful with yeah. talking about the different um, different requirements and everything like that. That was that was very interesting, and I, I totally agree that we're going to, in order to have a, a very um, you know, be the best and have a very fulfilled workforce, and, and to be a system, we're going to have to address these issues and. And that's the, the investment, uh, Tristie and I, is really for you guys to decide in, in mm -hmm. collaboration with Delvecchio and determine where do we spend our limited dollars. Right. Uh, you know, the thing, the only thing I would say about Epic is the alternative to not investing in Epic was worse for our employees' um, operations. Right. Oh, absolutely. And, and, and I think most of our employees would see that their work life, as well as the care for the patients, is going to improve substantially with Agreed. that than if we stayed where we were. And I might add that Epic seems like the first universal I mean, there's a program that everyone will have the same, be on the yeah, same, across the system. same foundation. Yeah. And uh, actually, I'm going to correct you. It's Sapphire. Sapphire. Thank oh, you. Okay. I appreciate it. Oh, you missed Aaron Bellin. Is that what we're calling it? Oh, I get it. Yeah, 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 it's Sapphire. Oh, she needs her Sapphire. She needs her Sapphire. We'll get you. And I, I won't go into the car. I added those as Appendix A and Appendix B, but you, right. you can basically see we're bargaining all the time. Yeah, that was, yeah. Well, we know. that was helpful, yeah. and we, we know. Yeah, yeah. so. Um, and I think the PTO plan appendices is just like, you know, you need a CPA to it's figure it out. It's a really big opener. Mike, do you have any slides up? No. Again, I, and, and this is a matter of public record, right? And I'm, I'm assuming that all of the labor representatives are looking at this. And, I, and, and again, it's... I just believe in more of that open book management. Mm -hmm. There's only so much. How are we going to be able to do this with everyone at the table saying this is realistic for each of these bargaining units to to um, uh, uh, recognize as for the good of the whole, right? But I, I agree with you. It's, it, the question is, can, can they do that? I agree. Yeah. And I call upon their leadership. I, I feel like mm -hmm. this is something that has to be an open conversation. Mm -hmm.
Thank you. Good, good discussion. Hopefully, it's, it, it's preparation for for the yeah. retreat. Well, should we share the? Um, I would from actual. So as a part uh, of the employment uh, at AHS, I thought that was the whole packet was great. And I would suggest with the rest of the board. So if I if I can say uh, so so part of one part of uh, just like the regular four board meetings, the the board part of the meeting will include the. Um, now come from the chair, so whatever you want to convey to the rest of the board from uh, the committee, and if you want to call people's attention to certain things, then uh, we can absolutely pass it along. The other part of this is, so uh, for the retreat you were on call, uh, so forgive me for repeating this, but um, uh, we're going to give a, a plan update, progress where we are, and then, you know, things that we see on the horizon uh, as uh, future, uh, uh, what we've been called transformational challenges that we have to address, these more thorny, thornier issues. And um, so then the second part, which is gets to uh, uh, Trustee Hernandez's work, is looking at then how do we, how do we, with your guidance, take your um, direction on how to unpack these more, how to uh, come up with a set of recommendations, or elicit from you a set of recommendations around how, whether and how we address these things. So that'll be kind of the, the hopefully the byproduct, one of the byproducts of the retreat itself. Well, this is a great start. I appreciate it. Okay. okay. Thank right. you. Mm -hmm. And with that, uh, unless Tony did anything? Yeah, but Jenna. I'd like to get another item for you. Oh. Yeah, yes. So the uh, next item is the uh, report from the uh, Ricardo Flags Investment Committee. And uh, um, just to uh, provide a degree of uh, context for you, as you know, we have a uh, committee which um, is made up of both uh, staff and a representative of the board, which basically acts as the um, overseer of the uh, retirement, AHS retirement plans. And so that would include, excuse me, uh, all seven of the plans, I believe, is the total number. One, two, three, six, eight of the plans. You would include the Alameda Hospital plans as well, too. Uh, the committee is uh, made up, the designated members of the committee are the CHRO, the general counsel, and the CFO, and there are two employee members. Uh, we currently have two vacancies, the CFO position uh, and a vacancy uh, with one of the employee positions. So we'll be recruiting a new member of four to serve on this committee um, in the coming months as well, too. Uh, the committee meets quarterly uh, at the meetings. Um, they, we are provided information and advice uh, from both our overall investment advisor, Marsh McLennan, uh, and then the individual plan members, Prudential, which covers most of the uh, combined plans, and then um, another firm, uh, who's uh, Highmark, which provides investment advice on the plans, uh, the defined contribution plans, and the Alameda Hospital plans. Um, Good news, um, everything is going quite well uh, with the plans. Um, when we have the meetings, uh, we look at not only uh, the plan performance, you know, from the standpoint of are the plans, you know, uh, performing according to market standards, are the plans performing according to the standards set forth in the investment policies, um, and which plans are going on the watch list, which plans are coming off the watch list. We also look at the behavior of employees under the plans. And so what is, uh, how are the plans growing? Uh, why are the plans growing? How many employees are engaging themselves in our plans? And routinely, um, and I think characteristically, uh, the report each meeting is that the performance of AHS employees in the plans uh, is very encouraging and positive in terms of the number of employees who are involved in the plans, uh, their methods of contribution, and their evolution within the plans. And so, for example, we've seen a steady growth in the number of employees who are using um, 
uh, self-directing tools to cover their investments as opposed to just putting money into the plan and letting the plan you know manage those themselves um, so from that standpoint you know everything uh, is going very well uh, from a cost standpoint uh, over the I think we sort of culminated in this last meeting a, a process to ensure that we are paying the lowest cost possible to administer the plans. So one of the things that, uh, or one of the steps that we had taken, we had started at earlier meetings but is now finished, is that we basically stripped out of the plans um, or provided certain um, non-cost options within the plans so that um, there's no load on a plan for every employee who's invested in the plan. So currently our cost um, is about uh, 62 basis points and the average uh, for a plan like ours is 85 basis points. So that's a significant savings. There is some dispute as to whether or not there's, in, you know, if you can actually have an apples to apples comparison because, you know, we're a, a public employer plan and most of the data uh, pertains to uh, ERISA type plans, which we are not, but still, you know, our view is that we are doing well by our employees in terms of the, pl the cost of the plan, uh, what they're paying uh, to maintain the plan itself. So uh, from our investment report last meeting, um, I don't think that there were anything, <coughs> like I say, uh, significant um, issues that were raised, uh, everything, uh, the plan assets have grown uh, approximately $190 million you know, since uh, the last report. Uh, we currently offer 21 options uh, for both active and passive investment. Um, 12 of those are target date funds, and so this was a change which we had implemented in the plan. So, um, you know, basically these are funds that are, you know, typically titled you know, name of the company, 2020, 2030, 2040, and basically they are useful to employees to help them pick a fund which would mirror their risk profile, you know, and the idea being that I plan to retire in 2040, so this is a fund which is focused its investments on maximizing returns for me if I retire at that time. So there was some discussion within the committee about implementing or including those funds uh, in the lineup, uh, sort of confirmed by the employee, so we now have those in there as well, too. Um, the other things, uh, just a note, I mentioned uh, the uh, uh, current cost, uh, 62 basis points versus 85 basis points. Uh, the other figures, uh, 3,080 total participants in the plan, um, which is an increase uh, over what we had had before. The uh, average contribution rate for the employees in the plan is 11% uh, of their um, of uh, their compensation. Uh, the average account balance is uh, $65,000. Uh, or a little over $65,000 for each of the plan participants. Um, let's see, anything else? Um, yeah, the, the, yeah, the one issue that, you know, we've had some discussion around, and I, and I, I, I shouldn't say an issue, the one subject we have had discussion around uh, concerns the number of outstanding loans under the plan. That's one of the things, one of the metrics we look at. Uh, to determine, you know, and that number has tended to be somewhat consistent uh, with our employers. 
and on the one hand, it's not good behavior, um, generally speaking, because you don't want you know the ideas people you know, to be obtaining the. Uh, the advantage of compounded growth with the money that they're investing, but there's also the recognition that there's a number of factors, you know, which could, you know, uh, cause the need for a loan to be taken. You know, someone's buying a house, you know, college expenses, you know, various things like that. So we've looked at it from the standpoint of more education to employees, um, and you know, over uh, beginning in September, we've had several education programs which are being ongoing. So we provide um, a pathway course, which is basically financial plan for employees um, that uh, occurs periodically. Uh, those have gone, I think they concluded in September, but they may be going on into October as well, too. Um, but those seminars, you know, have been uh, well attended um, by employees, again, demonstrating engagement and interest by employees, you know, in, um, in their investment future as opposed to us just sort of telling them, you know, what they need to do, if you will. Um, so, any questions about the plans themselves or uh, the, the viewpoint of the outlook? That's great. Okay. Um, Are you representative Yes. Yes. And there's also, a, 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 I should say, Susanna Flores is the employee representative. Yes. Who, uh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, and, to, and so to, to get a new employee number on there, we did have a discussion at the last meeting, and so. Uh, uh, the HR staff, uh, Nathan Chung, who works, you know, with uh, in this area, is going to ha or has developed um, essentially an application, and we're going to solicit from employees some representative or people who would be interested in being representatives on the plan, as opposed to us picking somebody. So hopefully, um, we will make the solicitation. We'll get some applications, and then those names will go to Del Vecchio, to Del Vecchio to you know select the next uh, employee member of the plan. Um, and then the intent, as it says right now, is to leave the CFO seat vacant until a uh, permanent uh, CFO is hired. Um, it doesn't interfere with what we're doing right now, and it uh, did not seem to be uh, a necessary burden for Nancy to have to be involved in that as well, too. So the only other thing I wanted uh, to report on is the uh, termination of the ECHO, ECHO plan, which is the Alameda Hospital plan. And this is a plan, um, you know, basically that has been dormant, if you will, since 2004. And at this point, um, or earlier, the decision was made to uh, take steps to terminate the plan at some date so that we could, you know, um, um, avoid having to continue to bear the administrative costs of keeping the plan open. Uh, at this point, there's only a handful of employees in the plan, um, and it's cheaper, in our view at this point, to go ahead and terminate the plan than to continue uh, to administer it. So we've embarked on that process. It's about a year-long process overall, which basically goes through several steps. First is the organization's determination that the plan should be terminated. Uh, then we have to uh, seek a letter of approval from the IRS to actually terminate the plan. Then once that uh, approval is obtained, then uh, we uh, distribute the assets to the employees, and that's the end of it. So. Currently, we are looking at a plan termination date, or anticipating a plan termination date of December 31st, 2018, which would then result in an actual distribution date sometime in early 2020. In all likelihood, you know, sometime February, March of 2020. Um, part of the planning in this is the understanding that the IRS determination letter 
probably is going to take nine to 12 months. So if we terminate December 31st of 2018, request a letter from the IRS in January 2019, should have that letter somewhere near the end of 2019, November, December 2019, which would then allow us to go ahead and make the distrib distributions in 2020. Because of that timeline, the other consideration we had is um, you know, basically allocating costs from the plan, you know, because the, these, the, the, the actual plan costs are, are now going to uh, be modified as we're going through this process. So Tony worked with Nancy Katz to figure out the, 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 the ideal date for the termination as well as the distribution to have the minimum impact on the financial statement. There's going to be some impact, but we've basically taken a look at how to minimize that uh, financial statement impact. Um, and then <clears throat> the other issue, excuse me, um, once we, um, uh, once the, uh, uh, the termination date is approved, I guess the IRS letter is obtained, um, there are two plan annuitants, or two members of the plan who would, uh, for which an annuity would be required to pay out their money. Uh, the rest of them would be lump sum distributions. Um, I think uh, the overall, the total cost number that we're talking about now at this point is a little over $2 million. I, I'm looking at right. Yeah, we're gonna, I think uh, my questions will probably carry somewhere between four hundred and six hundred thousand in this fiscal year. Uh, after we've reported it and the rest will be carried in the future based on Nancy's rolling forecast, that's the best way for us to do it when we are. Despite our current position, we're more likely to be cash rich than the cash flow in the future as we're paying more out to Epic as that gets the conclusion. So right. we've read it out across the plan and she's identified what she thinks is the best day for termination. Mike's number is about right. Yeah. So, um, so I mean, it's a significant event, uh, but um, not extraordinary. Um, this sort of thing happens uh, all the time. So there will be an item on the uh, board agenda uh, asking the Board of Trustees to confirm the December, 9th, or December 31st, 2018 termination date for the plan and then directing staff to take whatever steps are necessary to um, uh, ensure the uh, proper distribution of the, uh, the assets of the plan. And at that point, that will be one less potential liability off of the board. <laughs> one small bitty. We can count on this committee's support. <laughs> okay. Well, very good. So, unless there's any questions, that's all I have in terms of the report on this committee. Can I ask for one question? I'm, I'm, it's just a quick one. Do we still keep a running track record of items? that each committee has got sort of on the issue tracker. Yes. 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 Okay. Yes. We've, we, we have on our agenda discussion on the planning calendar, the committee agenda, you know, nine attachment leave. What we kind of do in this committee, what we've been doing is just to um, turn here from people's discussion items, like, for example, today, the employee, um, the, the, what was it, the um, survey of, so those things, since we have a shorter agenda, we kind of um, Are we keeping that inside the, um, the board effect? No. Yeah. Okay. I, I don't think I've seen them all for this no. committee, like no. the others. Okay. Uh, 
And I thought of the frequency as well as yeah. Because I, I don't know if we do a law for audit either, which is also a yes. meeting. Yes. No. Yeah. So yeah. just a request or a thought. We can do this in the retreat. It would be great yeah. to put it in one place yeah, okay. so that we can see as a board. Mm -hmm. What, what do we need to address, to you yeah. know? And I think the board of that can be used for that. Yeah. So and remind us what we have addressed. Yeah. And, and, and remind us of what we've done, too. Mm -hmm. so and, and there is the board tracking calendar that right. was instituted at the retreat, yeah. spring retreat, so. Is that inside board effect? Yeah. It is. Okay. It is. All right. I'll okay. 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 <laughs> <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.